Almighty God, you alone are the one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You alone are worthy to receive all blessing, honor, glory, and might in this forever and ever. You have indeed no rivals. Everything else is creation. You alone are creator. We acknowledge and confess our diligent running after other gods, Father. Every lifeless trinket that flashes or glitters we run after. Every opportunity to receive glory and fame for ourselves we sacrifice everything for. Every relationship we foolishly think will fill our loneliness and our longing we grasp for these things. Oh, that you will reveal to each of us this morning the gods, the idols that we are so devoted to. Grant us, Father, I pray, repentance, that we might turn to God from idols and by faith that we might serve our only living and true God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you do this for us, Lord? For we are unable to see our own sin as we ought. We are unable to evaluate the sinfulness of our sin apart from your word and your spirit shining light upon our souls and revealing our rebellion, our apostasy that is so prevailing in each of us. Oh, how we need Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh, that you would come and show us Jesus Christ, our Savior. That we might trust his perfect life of righteousness, his singular devotion and absolute loyalty to all of your commands. And that we might, through faith, worship our one true God. And that we might do that in a way that's well-pleasing to you as we turn to Jesus Christ our object of worship. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> worship is of eternal value. Worship is also of eternal consequence. And so as we turn this morning to consider and begin to study through the Ten Commandments, we might not first and foremost consider the Ten Commandments as ten commandments or ten words, ten things that are given to, to, given to us that we might worship rightly and appropriately. But this is exactly what these are. When we consider the idea of worship... In our age, imagination and creativity, our talents and gifts, these are the things so many people think of instead of the Ten Commandments. We listen to conversations or maybe read articles about worship, and too often ideas of preference and style and experience become paramount, almost as if, almost as if um, the Lord has no real interest in, in, in who or how we worship. That's the furthest thing from the truth. When the authority of how we're to worship gets placed, out, gets placed inside of us, 
we begin talking about preferences, styles, experience, giftedness, creativity, freshness. But when worship gets rightly and appropriately rooted in its authority from Scripture, those words seem to go away. Those words of preference and style, experience, creativity, and imagination, those things seem to be not even a part of the equation. But instead, as we come to God's Word and specifically His Ten Commandments, we see that God is calling us to worship Him fully. To love Him fully and to love our neighbors rightly. And so as we look at the Ten Commandments, we know that they've been divided throughout the centuries in two primary categories. If you will, two tablets. I'm not sure if we can find in Scripture that four commandments were written on one tablet and six on the other. But we understand them in two tablets, two categories. The first four speaks of our love and worship for God. And the last six commandments tell us of how we're to love and care for, rightly, our neighbor. And so as we go through these Ten Commandments, we're going to be spending a commandment, Lord willing, a week, and looking at each one of them individually, considering them and applying them to our heart. This requires incredible work and diligence on our part. Because we're, one, so familiar with these Ten Commandments, and specifically this morning as we look at the first commandment. But secondly, because we love our idols. We're convinced our idols are not that big of a deal. And we are not convinced that our idols are in fact affecting or influencing our lives all that much. And I've learned as a Christian and even as a pastor, I've said this before, that when you put your finger on someone's idol, they will, they will kill you. They will. How dare you put your finger on that idol? So this morning we're going to be looking at the first commandment, which is really the foundational one. And the reason I say that is this, is that this commandment really is the, is the commandment that precedes and is the foundation for all the other nine. In other words, if you get this one right, the other nine will follow correctly. If you, if you disobey one of the other nine commandments and you trace it down, you'll find that at the root of the other nine commandments, if you disobey one of them, is found this particular commandment, and that is that you're having some other God before you. So this morning we're going to be looking at the first commandment, which really deals with our object of worship. Our object of worship, that's really the... The point this morning, what is, what is it that we are worshiping? The question is not whether we are worshiping. Now I'm going to be using the word in various ways over the next several weeks as we look at the Ten Commandments. I'm going to speak of corporate worship, what we're doing in here, which is incredibly vital and we see that in the Scriptures. But also, as we live our lives out each day, what is our soul, our heart, what is our, our, our desires, what are they worshiping? And so I'm going to be speaking in both of those realms and hopefully you'll be able to see when I distinguish between the two. But this morning we're going to be asking the question, who are we worshiping? And we're to be worshiping the Lord alone. For He alone is to be reverenced and honored and worthy of our worship. So we're going to be looking at this commandment this morning, the first commandment in verse 3. And I want to read verses 1 through 3 for us as we look at it together. And then I'll give you an outline of how we're going to work along this particular commandment. Verse 1 of chapter 20 of Exodus, look with me if you will. 
And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Before me. So this morning I want us to notice this passage, specifically verse 3, in three parts. First, I want us to understand the exclusivity of God. The exclusivity of God. And this is the part of the verse where it says, You shall have no. You see that? It's speaking of an exclusivity of God here. Point number two. I want us to see the identity of idols or gods. I'm using that synonymous because Scripture uses that in a synonymous way. Idols or other gods, they're used interchangeably. And so... The exclusivity of God, point number one. The identity of idols, point number two. And we see this in our verse, verse three. You shall have no other gods. Do you see that? Point number two. And then point number three, we're going to look at the necessity of Christ. We're going to look at the necessity of Christ. The exclusivity of God, the identity of idols, and then the necessity of Christ. And we see this at the very end of verse three. You shall have no other gods, notice this, before me. Before me. And so that's the path, Lord willing, we'll be taking and looking at as we consider this commandment together this morning. Pray, I ask that you will pray in your own heart. Um, Each and every one of us um, need need to receive this this morning in a particular way. There are things that even our own, our own that we that we veiled from our own ourselves in way of our own idolatry and our own going after other gods. And so let's ask if you would in your own heart this morning, say, Lord, show me, reveal to me, pull the scales off my eyes, let me see what is here. Because brothers and sisters, the Lord is calling us to do this not because He's some domineering figure in a cloud that demands your no. This is for your good. This is for your pleasure. This is for, for, for you to live the life that God has called you to live in a way that's honoring to Him, in a way that's satisfying to your soul, that you may have no other gods before you, before Him. So notice this first, number one, the exclusivity of God. The exclusivity of God. We find here, very simply, that the Lord is demanding absolute unshared loyalty. Did you hear that? That's a phrase that you want to remember. The Lord here is demanding absolute, unshared loyalty as their God and their Lord. Absolute, unshared loyalty. We need to understand that in this passage, what is not being said is that the Lord needs to be preeminent among all the different gods and deities that you may have. He is not saying that in the multiple number of gods and deities that you may serve and worship, you need to make sure that the Lord God of the Hebrews is the preeminent first one, the most prized of all the other gods in your life. That is not what it's saying. But instead, what our passage is saying is all or nothing. You're going to worship the one true God, or you will not worship Him at all. We can see here in our passage that, and we begin meditating on this passage, and we see that this very commandment has rumblings in the first few words of our Bible. In Genesis 1, 
there's a declaration of this commandment. This commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God, <laughs> period. In other words, there isn't anything else that we are to be worshiping other than that one who in the beginning created all that is. So from the very beginning of our Bible, we have a monotheistic, meaning a singular devotion that is to be given to this one true God who is in heaven. An absolute unshared loyalty is in light of where God's people are. And this is what happens so often when we look at the Ten Commandments is we forget that these people are standing at the foot of a mountain. And according to our passage here, we have very clearly in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, a context that Moses is wanting us to understand. And that context is this, is that God's people are standing at the foot of this mountain and they're trembling before this mountain because there's incredible fear in their hearts because they see God come down upon this mountain. And it says here, I am the Lord your God, verse 2. Notice, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. There hasn't been a nation to that time of the time of the Egyptians or any other time as we've been looking back through the corridors of time and looking in the history of time and all other nations, there hasn't been another nation that's rivaled the Egyptian polytheism, meaning the, the numerous amount of gods and deities that the Egyptians have. We know, as we've studied in our history classes and other things, that we've looked into the books and seen the incredible pyramids filled with what? All kinds of idols and figurines and gold and different things. The Egyptians had no rival in way of the, the plurality of their deities and gods. Here we see in our passage, commandment number one is saying, Hebrews, you guys that I have delivered out of the land of Egypt, this polytheistic, numerous gods all over the place, they were there for hundreds of years. They were not only there in Egypt observing and exposed to the deities and gods of the Egyptians, what's the likelihood that they were taking on and absorbing and embracing the deities and gods of the Egyptians? Quite, quite likely. What is God doing when he, went through the ten, when he went through the ten plagues? He assaulted each and every deity of the Egyptians that was paramount. Everything from the Nile to silly things like frogs and gnats, right on down to the sun god, which was called Ra. The Lord was showing himself as being triumphant and sufficient in all of those deities, overpowering them and showing each and every one of those deities that they were empty and worthless and proved themselves unworthy to be worshipped. God was doing that through the plagues. He brings them out of the land of Egypt through all those ten plagues, destroying the <clears throat> the the uh, power of their deities, and now brings them to this mountain. And he says, I have proved to you through the ten plagues, I've proved to you through the bringing you through the wilderness, and now you're standing at this mountain, and I want you to know that I am the one true God. I deserve absolute, complete loyalty, as opposed to all the deities that you saw me overcome in Egypt, and all the deities, brothers and sisters, that were in their own hearts. All these gods that they had had. He was calling them to singular devotion. Not just the Egyptians, he was calling his people to that. Why? Because they were in Egypt. Though they were slaves, they were taking on the gods and the deities of their culture. 
800 years later from this point in Exodus 20, we read the prophet Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel is in an interesting time in the history of Israel. Real quick, don't want to spend much time here. But the prophet Ezekiel was prophesying during a time when God's people were getting ready to be carted off to Babylonia. It says, The glory of the Lord left the temple. A horrific thing took place in the midst of Israel. And as Ezekiel is anguishing over the glory of the Lord leaving the temple, and this is early on in Ezekiel, he is communicating to God's people this. 800 years after Exodus 20, he's saying, the reason we're being carted off to Babylon is because there wasn't a time in the history of us as a people that we were not idolatrous. That's what he says to them. He says, the reason we, the, the glory of the Lord left the temple is because it's filled with the idols and the gods of all the nations around us. The temple was. So the glory of the Lord was not going to stay there. The glory of the Lord, it says, gets on this amazing chariot that's described in Ezekiel and then gets, and gets, and goes away. You know what the elders and the leaders of the time of Ezekiel, come, they, they come to Ezekiel and they're saying, what happened? I mean, we, granted, we sinned and we were doing wrong things, but I mean, we weren't that bad. I mean, we were, we were trying our best. We were, we were doing the best things we knew to do, and, and we, we, were, we were trying to hold it together. I mean, we, we really weren't that bad. We were just doing this and this. And so <clears throat> they were wondering why God was treating them so harshly. These are elders of the people during the time of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel says, this idolatry was not an isolated, unusual event, but it was one that became a pattern for God's people throughout all of history. And in Ezekiel chapter 20, you can write this down, I'm going to read it and move on. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 2, listen to what happens. And the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, son of man. This is Ezekiel. Speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, it is, to inquire, is it to inquire of me that you come? In other words, the Lord is telling Ezekiel to tell God's people, and specifically the elders, you mean to come and question me about your rampant sin? And you're trying to negotiate of how bad you really were? That's, that's what the Lord is telling Ezekiel to tell these leaders. Is it? To inquire of me that you have come. As I live, declares the Lord, I will not be inquired of by you. Let them know, the Lord says to Ezekiel, and he's telling Ezekiel to tell the elders, let them know the abominations of their fathers. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them where? In the land of Egypt. I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God. Where does that come from? Right here. Ezekiel saying to God's people in, in time of Ezekiel, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that, was, that had... That, that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, and most glorious of all lands. The Lord says, I promised you lavish riches and a wonderful bounty if you would obey my commandments, thus saith the Lord. Ezekiel goes on and says, And I said to them, this is what the Lord's saying, Cast away the detestable things 
your eyes feast on, every one of you. And do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. Listen. But you rebelled against me. So what is being said here? This is the point I wanted to make. 800 years. Put that in perspective. America has only been around 200 years. Okay, So 800 years of disobedience. And how does Ezekiel describe it as God has given it to him? It's your idolatry. It's your going after other gods. That is the heart of the issue. He could have described all kinds of other things they were doing. Um, Committing adultery and stealing and coveting, all these other things. But no, he boils it down. And here in Ezekiel Day, 800 years later, he says, Over all these years, from the time of Egypt when I brought you out till now, I was calling you to be faithful to me. And you rebelled and followed after idols of the Egyptians. You rebelled against me and were unwilling to listen to me. None of them cast away their detestable things from their eyes, but instead feasted on them, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. That's what God is telling the people of Ezekiel's day. And what we find is that during that period from Exodus 20 to the time of Ezekiel when they were carted off to Babylon, severe, incredible punishment and judgment for that. Why? Because of their idolatry. We see over and over again, We see over and over again words and phrases like high places. They had high places. They had household gods. High places where they devoted themselves to and went up to and had all kinds of different rituals in. Household gods that they carried around with them and carted around with them and depended on. These were God's people, not the foreigners. So after the Babylonian captivity, God's people were brought back to Jerusalem. So they get carted off for 70 years to Babylon because of their idolatry. After 70 years, God in his grace, through Cyrus, this is church history here, they get brought back to Jerusalem. They're only there for a handful of years. And Ezra the priest, this was in my devotions this week, so I'm going to bring it out. Ezra the priest is talking to God's people. And Ezra comes to find out that when they came back from their captivity in Babylon, they brought the idols of Babylon with them. And it says it grieved his heart. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, Hittites, Perzites, Jebusites, Amunites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives. And it goes on and says that as they were intermarrying with these other nations, that they were bringing on the idolatry of these other nations when they were intermarrying with these other nations. And in this faithfulness, faithlessness, the land of the officials and chief priests had been the foremost. I speak of all of this to say that it's hard for us to look at a page in our Old Testament when God's people were not pursuing idolatry in other gods. We need to note two things about this particular point. Is that the Lord, first and foremost, that we are persistent and tenacious in our idolatry. So the question this morning is not, I wonder if I have one or two. 
The question is, is how many are we comfortably living with? And we are just like the elders of Ezekiel time when God says, I'm going to judge you because of your idolatry, because of your, your, your other loves. You come to God and say, what do you mean? I go to church every Sunday. I'm, I'm, I'm an upstanding citizen. I read my Bible. I do all these other things. Here's, here's the difficulty that Christianity is going to have in the days ahead, because this is the difficulty Christianity's had for so many years and yet it's kind of lost, lost its teeth in America. Christianity says that Jesus Christ alone is to be worshipped. All others go to hell. There is an exclusivity of our worship. We are, we're not being bigoted or arrogant. We're simply stating what is true from the Scriptures. The Lord has said that He does not want anyone worshiping or having any other gods. That doesn't just mean the outside world out there. Atlantic Boulevard has its gods and deities. All you've got to do is drive up and down the road and see the signs. They'll flash in front of you, the gods and deities of this world. The question I have this morning, brothers and sisters, and the thing that the Lord is really concerned about, the Lord never worries about the gods and deities of the Egyptians in Egypt. What he wanted to know was, are those, in, are those things in your heart? Are these deities and gods, are these loves that the world have, are they in your heart? And so, first thing I want us to note is that the account, if we look at the broad history of God's people throughout the Old Testament, is they were tenacious, they were persistent in pursuing after these other deities and gods. And we need to be careful, as John Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. We may lay one down, but we'll make three or four more. The second thing I want us to note from this history and this exclusivity that God is calling us to is that the Lord never and has never looked away or ignored the sin. He's never thought of it as lightly, thought lightly of it. He was never indifferent or unclear about how he felt about it. The Lord has always, with exact and thorough judgment, punished this sin in all humanity. And it shocks us when we read our Old Testament. If you read our Old Testament and see what the, the extent of the judgment that God placed on His people because of their idolatry, you think, this is amazing. This is astonishing. To see the depravity and the horror of what God did to judge these people because of their because of their running after other gods. They're taking on... Not, they, they never left the sacrifices of the temple. They never left the regular routine of the Lord. They just added to that all kinds of other things. That was their problem. And that is our problem, brothers and sisters. It's not that we've abandoned the Lord. It's that we've added all these other things on. That's the passage, what's what this passage is saying. There's an exclusivity that God requires of us. The Lord demands absolute unshared devotion and loyalty from his people. No equals, no rivals, no competitors. The exclusivity of God. Second point I want us to see is the identity of these idols or gods. If the rebellion of God's people was so consistent and so thorough, then we have to ask how we might be able to identify these idols and gods in our own lives. We might think that because of the ancient times and they were backwards in their life, that they danced around totem poles and 
little figurines. They had high places and household gods that they placed prominently in their homes. How unsophisticated and how unsorted they may be. And yet we may think that because we have computers and technology and we can send people to space and we can govern ourselves with such amazing power that idolatry is all but left us as sophisticated people. It is outdated. Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which I would commend to you, it's a short book, it's very good, he says this, Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems, and its rituals. Each one has its shrines. Listen, each culture has its shrines. Whether it's office towers, spas, or gyms, studios, or stadiums, we're all sacrificing to these. We're all sacrificing to these that we may be able to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off the disaster that we know is coming. What are the gods of beauty and power and money and achievement but the same gods that they bow down to in the ancient world are the same gods that we as individuals are bowing down today in our society? You see, our idolatry is exactly the same. Why? Because our hearts are exactly the same. If anything, we just have technology that can make it faster. <laughs> we, can, we can be idolaters with much more ease and proficiency. And that's not a good thing. So the question then is, has to be asked, what is an idol? I want to give us several angles about it, and we're going to look at it from different angles, but I want to give a, a simple, concise definition first, and then we'll work from that. The simple and concise definition of what is an idol is this. Many of you have heard this before. An idol is anything often a good thing, that we deify by making it an ultimate thing in our lives. An idol is anything, often a good thing, that we deify by making it an ultimate thing in our lives. Any, anything, and most of the time, brothers and sisters, we've got to realize this, these are good things. These aren't rank hard things. These are things like our family, our children our spouses, our, our homes, our jobs, things that the Lord has blessed us with, that are good things that now we have made ultimate things, and they have then become deities and gods in our lives. It's what Paul says in Romans one twenty five when he says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So are idols real things? Do, do, do they really exist? The answer is yes and no. Yes, in that they really do influence and drive our lives. Every one of us know that they do. No, in the sense that they're not true deities, and they should never take that place. <laughs> that's what's being talked about in 1 Corinthians 10, as Hal read, for us, read, for, read it for us earlier tonight or today. It says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And he goes on, he says, is, is the reason we're to flee from idolatry is because idols are something? And he says, no, not at all. They're not anything. But you're giving your lives to them, so you, there's, there's substance to them that's drawing you away to demons and not to God. 
So Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21 says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. These are New Testament passages. This isn't the Old Testament anymore that I'm reading from. In other words, the idolatry that the Old Testament saints heard and saw and experienced in the New Testament, Paul in 1 Corinthians and John in 1 John 5, 21 are saying, you need to flee from these things. You need to keep yourself from these idols because they're still just as prominent to be in our hearts. The first thing we need to do if we're going to flee from idols or keep idols from ourselves is we need to understand the identity of them. So let me help you this morning as we look at this. One of the best persons that I've read on this is, <clears throat> is John Calvin, so I'm, I'm going to quote or, or lean on him at this point. He says the best way to obey this commandment, commandment number one, is to do four things. These four things are due to God. These things God we owe to God are these four things, and this is how you obey this commandment. It says this, one adoration. One adoration. God deserves our adoration. In order for us to obey this commandment, we adore or provide adoration to God. We render God worship and pay homage to His majesty and His majesty alone. Number two, we trust. Number two, we trust. We rest happy and secure in God's power and perfections. Did you hear that? So number one, we adore in order to obey this commandment. Number two, we trust. We rest happy and secure in God's power and perfections. Number three, invocation. We seek out God's promises aided, by the, aided in our time of need. So we seek out God's promised aid in our time of need. Invocation. And then fourthly and finally, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. We recognize God as the fount of every blessing. Adoration. God, we, do, with God, we owe God adoration. We owe God trust. We go, owe God invocation. We owe God thanksgiving. Now you're thinking, why is he telling us this? I thought we were going to get an idea of idolatry. Here it is, okay? I took these four things and I said, if this is true, this is what God, we owe God, this is what God deserves, and this is how we obey this commandment. What happens if I flip this and begin asking these questions of my soul? So here are, here's a way, four questions, that you can begin deciding, evaluating the functional idols in your own life. Four questions you can ask yourself that will allow you to begin understanding the functional idols in your lives. Okay? What I mean by that is the idols that are actually there, though you may not acknowledge them or understand them to be there until you begin evaluating your heart in this way. These were very helpful for me. Four questions. <clears throat> One, who or what do you praise? What do you really want more than anything? What can you not live without? That's this question. This, this is all one question here. What do I praise or adore? And these are several ways that I'm asking the question in my own heart. What do you really want? What can you not live without? And as I begin meditating on this, I begin thinking about sometimes, sometimes I use God as a means to get something else that I really want. And, and anytime I'm using God as a means to get something else, then that other thing is the idol. God's just a stepping stone. 
And so evaluate your hearts, brothers and sisters. What is it that you really want? What is the thing that you adore? What's the thing that you praise? What's the thing that, that, that causes you to, to lighten up? I mean, to, to, to light up when someone begins talking about this thing or that thing. What, what is it that causes you excitement? What is it that you adore and that you praise? Know these things that you really, really want are good indicators of what truly is an idol in your heart. Question number two, what do you trust or depend on? What do you cling to or depend on in your own life? What are the things that if they fell out from under you, you would have no hope? What is it that you're trusting in? What is it that you're depending on? Had a brother in Christ once said, I thought I had faith until I realized I didn't. We do not know how much we trust and depend on so many things that are around us until they begin to fall away. And then we realize our hearts have been so attached to this thing, even in an idolatrous way, that we find that we have another God and didn't even know it. So what are you trusting in or depending on? What do you cling to or depend on? That's question number two. Question number three, what do you invoke or call out to? What do you call out or pursue when tragedy happens? What do you, where do you run? Every one of us, when something happens, you get on your cell phone and you call somebody. You, 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 when tragedy happens, you do not want to be alone. You want somebody to help you in that, and you call on somebody. Lord, help you if it's an insurance company. Lord, help you if it's so many other things that the world tries to give to us. What is it that we call upon? What is it that we turn to in our tragedy, in our time of need? That's question number three. Question number four, what are you thankful for? What makes you grateful? What makes you thankful? Shane Waters had to flip this one, and this may be helpful for you. What do you complain about or grumble about always? Convinced that if this thing would happen, then I can be thankful again. That thing that you're convinced that you need in order to stop grumbling and complaining all the time, that thing is an idol. That thing is the idol. That thing is the other God. Because grumbling and complaining is not trusting in God. So do you see what I've done? I've taken these four things... That, uh, that Calvin told us would be a way that we can obey this commandment, adoration, trust, invocation, thanksgiving. And I've turned them around and I've said, what is it that we're praising and adoring? What is it that we're trusting in? What is it that uh, we call to when times of tragedy happens? What is it that's, that causes us to be thankful? Or what is it that's making us grumble? These things are good indicators for us. As we begin to evaluate and consider our own idolatry, a great way to do this, just from a personal pastor as one who's trying to evaluate my own heart often, um, our emotions and our passions, meaning our frustrations and our anger and our irritability, and, our, and I've got a lot of that, um, meaning that there's a lot of idolatry in my own heart, those things are, are excellent indicators of what I'm insisting that God give me in order to be happy. And God's saying... Those things will never make you happy. These things, the Him, His presence, His goodness, His grace, His provision, His, His, His care for me, 
is what will satisfy my soul. But I am persistent. I am convinced that I have at least a little bit of understanding of what I need and how I need to live and what needs to go on in my life. And brothers and sisters, that is me being tenacious to serve some other God. To be insistent that God is not enough and that not that I'm denying the Lord outright. No, I want the Lord, no doubt. Pray to him, read his word, but let me have this too. Our commandment this morning says, You shall have no other gods before our Lord. Number one was the exclusivity of God. Number two was the identity of the idols or the gods. Number three, if you would, look with me at the necessity of Christ. The necessity of Christ. We've seen the exclusivity of the command. We've seen how to identify or begin identifying the idolatry in our own hearts. Finally, we've got to find out this last little phrase, which really is the majority of commentaries spend the, most of the time on this last phrase. And you see here in the ESV that it can be translated either before me or besides me. The whole context leaves no real question. It is before me. Besides me means you can have other gods. You just can't have any that are equal to what I am, right? And we just talked about the fact that that's exactly not what the passage is saying. What he's saying here is this. You shall have no other gods in front of the Lord or or before the Lord in his presence. And that's the best way to understand this. God's people were at the foot of the mountain. And they were trembling. Where? In the presence of God. They were at the foot of the mountain. There was no slight or insignificant event here. They understood how substantial and weighty it was to be before Almighty God. As they were standing at this mountain and the Lord says, You shall have no other gods. Where? Before the Lord. In the midst of His Amidst of his terrible and amazing presence, you should have no other gods. This is God Almighty that he's, they're standing in front of. They are convinced that there is incredible severity and displeasure with this commandment. This commandment is the one that says, when you have other gods, you're having other gods in my presence. Most commentators say, this is like, this is like, you know, God, when we were children, our parents insisted on us sharing things, Right? That was the godly thing to do. But we all know that there are, though there are many, many things that we are to share, there are things that God has commanded us that actually are offensive and wrong to share, that we are to be exclusive with. And marriage is one of those. Most of the commentaries, as far back as I could read, said, coming before the Lord with these other deities is like a man coming home with another wife and asking that they could live together. Oh, can't we do that? I mean, let's, let's, not, let's not make it so drastic. You know what? <clears throat> let's, 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 let me bring another woman home to live with us just for one night. A year. Just one night a year. That's not too much to ask. Do you see how offensive that should be? You see how just that, that, that should offend us. And in the same way, that we bring these false idols and deities before God's face, it should offend us. Now, I believe we've lost this in our society. And I think we're losing this more and more. Why? Because in our culture today, we are losing the very idea of presence. Hear me for just a second. I believe we're beginning to trivialize, cheapen, and even treat people as less than humans. Why? 
Because the primary means of communication that we have with so many people is through our devices. It's through these, these things that we hold in our hands. And we're interacting with one another with these. And it's so easy to treat somebody as if they're not a real person when I zing them a text or an email and just kind of let them have it and then hit send and let it go, right? Why? Because I have, I have no longer began, treat, began treating you or thinking of you as a human being that's an image bearer of God. And I began treating you like the object that's in my hand. Why? Why do I do that? Why do we do that? Why do we treat people less than human as we're interacting with them through our devices? Because we're not before them. We act different when we're standing in the front of somebody, aren't we? Don't we we treat people different, Lord willing? It hasn't so affected our relationships that when we're in front of somebody, we actually feel this, this urgency, this need to treat that person like another human being instead of like a device. <clears throat> we, can, we can just set the device down and ignore it. But when somebody's in front of us, we've, we, we're, we're, we're bound to treat them like a true person. The Lord here is saying that when we sin against him in this way, we're sinning before his presence. He made all things, he sees all things. Do you see how this last two-word phrase, before me, really underscores the severity and the importance of us as we consider these other gods and deities that may be in our lives. These are not a trivial matter. They can easily be thought of, and in fact, everywhere in our Bible, when people were confronted with their idols, the elders and the leaders and the people were like, what? What do you mean? This isn't a big deal. Why? Because they were so pervasive and they became so comfortable with them They thought God was okay with all of the idolatry that was in their hearts that they were completely unaware of. And so what we see here is that as it speaks of the fact that they should have no other gods before me, the Lord is saying that he's he's not unaware or absent, but instead very present. Every time we allow our hearts to linger and pursue other things that are not him. This is a great personal displeasure to God when we pursue other deities when our hearts began longing and loving other things than him. It is, it is in his presence that we are sinning against him, and this should cause us to understand the weight of that. Finally, let me end by saying this. How do we then, this may or may not be a question that you ask, but hopefully it's one that we can consider for just a moment. How do we then, as Christians, understand the fact That when we cross from the Old Testament into the New Testament, the apostles and the Christians of the New Testament never batted an eye. There was never a hiccup when all of a sudden, all of them unanimously began worshiping Jesus. Wait a minute. That can't be. You mean that when we cross from the Old Testament into the New Testament, all of the church and all of the disciples and all of the apostles began worshiping Jesus? And they never once thought to themselves, wait a minute, are we placing other gods before us? Not at all. Not at all. But instead, when we cross into the New Testament, we find that the apostles and the disciples, as they write in the New Testament, they communicate with incredible clarity 
that in order to have no other gods before the Father, the appropriate and right way to worship is through Jesus Christ, the one true God. We are to have no other gods indeed. But this side of the cross, we're told to adore, to trust in, to call upon, to thank who? Christ. Only in Christ do we know God's presence. Only through Christ can we come into God's presence. Christ is to be worshipped as fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ is God and thus deserves and requires our worship, our adoration, our trust, our invocation, our thanksgiving. Our confession says religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, listen, and Him alone. Do you hear that? (laughs) Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Him alone, the one true God. This morning I'm calling us to live our lives before God. And I'm saying that the only way we can do that is to look and to consider and to trust in Christ. Some of you this morning have never abandoned your idols. You've never laid down the deities of your soul and come to Christ. This morning, my prayer is that you will come and see that when Christ came and lived on this earth, he lived in perfect and absolute devotion to to, to God the Father. He fulfilled all the commands in every way. He went to the cross, and when he died, he died there for idolatry. Our idolatry, our own hearts that so abandon and run off with everything that glitters. And by placing our faith in Christ, our sin of idolatry is removed. It's forgiven. It's atoned for. Brothers and sisters, I want to call you as Christians to understand that though you have placed your faith in Christ, and there was a time and a place when you said, I'm going to abandon all others and follow Christ, you too have hearts that are weary and are wandering, that are constantly going after other things, that are seeking other places for refuge, for hope, for pleasure, and not in Christ alone. Our hearts are so fickle. So apt to go after each and everything. My prayer this morning is that you will not only acknowledge Christ and revel in Him and trust Him and call upon Him, but that you'll see that the way you can follow this commandment, commandment number one, is first by coming back to Christ. Coming back and seeing that in Christ and Him alone can you find the strength and the ability to, 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 to serve the Lord and the Lord only. Christ is our singular object of worship and i want to show this through the apostles i felt i prayed and thought through how how can i show this and so i'm just going to run through and show you from the new testament just different passages where the apostles are commending us to look to christ and to worship him alone so first in the gospel of john he calls us to have to honor jesus christ in the same way that we honor the father John 5.23 says, Jesus says this, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. How do you obey the first commandment? Honor the Son. John 14.5 says, Jesus said to me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, how? Except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. The disciples go on and Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? How do we worship the one true God, have no other gods before us, turn to Christ? Why? Because Christ is our singular object of worship. Paul says that Jesus Christ is worth all to us. In Romans 10, verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew, that's the God of the Old Testament, and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Do you see how Paul's using that word? He's saying the Lord that's in the Old Testament, that God, that's calling us to worship Him, is the Lord of the New Testament. And he goes on, he says, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is he speaking of there? Call on the name of Jesus will be saved. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, For we proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. For ourselves, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give, listen to this, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So what Paul's saying is here is that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is being shown in our hearts, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. How do we worship the Father? By looking into the face of Jesus Christ. Probably the clearest passage that many of us know is Philippians 2, where it says, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus... And bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, what will happen? Every knee will bow. What is that? That is worship. That is worship of the one true God. That is abiding and living according to chapter 20, verse 3, that says, You shall have no other gods before me when you bow before Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For there is no other name in heaven or on earth or under the earth or every tongue of confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How? To the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? The glory of God the Father is displayed when Jesus Christ is bowed before. Why? Because he is indeed God. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 97 and says that This one who is the firstborn into all the world, speaking of Jesus, the angels will worship him. God the Father himself, at the baptism of Jesus and at the transfiguration of Jesus, says this phrase. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How do we we worship God before his face? It says here, before me. You have no other gods before me. How do we do that in a pleasing way, this pleasing to the Father? Well, he says here, in the baptism and in transfiguration, that the Father says, this is my my Son in whom I am well pleased. When you worship Jesus, you're doing that in a pleasing way before the Father. Jesus is our singular object of worship. And finally, there will be a day, brothers and sisters, when Christ will receive his due worship and renown. And this will be forever and ever. Listen with me. Revelation chapter 5. Then John looked, who is the writer of Revelation, and I heard about, I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of the many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So this, this mass group of elders and angels and myriads of angels around with voices that are so loud you can hardly hear anything else. And what are they saying? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Do you hear that? How do you worship the one true God? 
Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, these together be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Why? Because they are God. They are one true God. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped, it says. Are they violating Exodus 20, verse 3? Not at all. Why? Because Jesus is our singular object of worship. He's absolutely necessary for us to fulfill this commandment. Praise and glory to the Father. Praise and glory to the Son. Praise and glory to the Spirit. Ever three and ever one. Let us pray.